Idolatry is a practice of worshiping a false god or gods. Now, in the times when the New Testament was written, you could say um, idolatry was really rampant throughout the world. The Roman Empire had basically taken on the Greek religion. And so there are all kinds of temples all over the place to various gods. Now, the Corinthians, they had as a prominent goddess in their city, um, Aphrodite, the goddess of love. But um, there wasn't just Aphrodite in the Roman Empire. There were other gods. There was a god of war. There was a god of the sea. There was a god of the sun. There was basically a god or goddess for everything you could possibly think of. And you could say that today, um, you know, much of the world still practices idolatry in this sense. Now, there are some religions out there where you see people worshiping for statues or images of false gods. Now, in my line of work, I travel to a lot of different homes, and sometimes I come by um, a home where there might be you know, different statues to different Hindu gods. And um, you might look at, um, in the corner of a, a Chinese restaurant. A lot of Chinese restaurants have a little idol in the corner and there might be an offering of fruit next to it. The Corinthians, they were saved out of a life of idolatry. Now, like I mentioned, the prominent goddess in the city was Aphrodite. And there was something called the cult of Aphrodite that was based in the city. Now, Aphrodite, she was one of the Greek gosses, and there were probably statues of her all over the place in the city. So a Corinthian might be tempted to go back in that lifestyle he enjoyed when he worshipped Aphrodite. I mean, after all, her images were all over the place. Now, maybe there was a question in the minds of some of these believers who were newly saved. Maybe they were thinking, well, um, can I do both? You know, can I be a follower of the Lord Jesus? And can I also eat um, of the food offered to the goddess Aphrodite? You know, weren't there certain perks um, being a worshiper of Aphrodite? Now, as we mentioned before, the city of Corinth, it was really known for sexual immorality. The cult of Aphrodite was basically a form of legalized prostitution in that city. A Corinthian believer might be tempted to go back into that life of sexual immorality that he or she once enjoyed. And by eating in the temple of an idol, a Corinthian believer would have been putting themselves in an environment where they might have been severely tempted to sin. Now, Noah went over in his message last week about how the Lord dealt with the nation of Israel when they turned to idols. Now, as spiritually privileged as the nation of Israel was, you know, they, they, were, they had the cloud of the Lord over them as they traveled. They were given God's word in a way that no other people on earth was. They did very poorly when tempted by idolatry. And the Lord judged many of the people of Israel, and many of them died in the wilderness. 
So in light of this example of Israel, Paul is warning the Corinthians they need to stay as far away from idolatry as they can. He knew that the temptation to go back into idolatry might be very strong for some of the Corinthians. So Paul just went over in the last verse that Noah covered, in verse 13, verse 13, that there is a way of escape. I'll just reread verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with a temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. But Paul is telling the Corinthians that there is an escape route from the temptations they are facing. And starting this passage, he's basically telling the Corinthians to take the escape route. Run. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 15, Paul says, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. So Paul is going to appeal to the reason of the Corinthians here. Now, we've covered already, the Corinthian believers, there were a lot of things going wrong in the church. They had a lot of problems, but Paul is addressing them as wise men. And basically he's saying something like, come on, you guys are no dummies. You're reasonable. You can judge for yourselves whether what I'm saying is true here. And Paul is going to ask the Corinthians to consider the seriousness of eating food offered to idols. Because eating food offered to idols, it's not just a harmless act. And Paul is going to show why in the next few verses. We'll look at verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, the cup of blessing which we bless and the bread which we break. Now, uh, those of us who are here in the last hour, it's pretty obvious what um, those terms apply to. Well, just, we'll just take a brief minute to make this verse abundantly clear. Now, I often confess there are times where you know, I'm, I take for granted the breaking of bread, the time that we spend worshiping the Lord in the morning. It's good to have a little refresher on just what exactly we're doing at 10 o'clock. When we have the breaking of bread, or what other churches might call communion, the cup of grape juice or wine that's passed around that we drink, it represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And the bread that we eat, which we break, it represents the body of the Lord Jesus broken for us. Now, what does this word communion mean? Now, it's not a word we use in everyday conversation, so we should make sure we know what this means. It's actually uh, the same word in Greek for the word fellowship. It literally means uh, having in common. It's similar to the word partake that we see later in this passage. When I drink the grape juice of the breaking of bread, 
I acknowledge that I am a partaker of the blessings that come from the blood of Jesus Christ. A cup of blessing. And it really is a cup of blessing. It's not just that Jesus sheds blood for us that we go to heaven. There's a lot of blessings associated with, with his blood. And we'll just go through a few of them. I'm spiritually clean through the blood of Christ. Now, as a sinner, the Lord says, I'm like an unclean thing, and all my righteousness is like filthy rags. But we see in the scripture that I've been washed by his blood. It says in 1 John that, the, that his blood cleanses us from all sin. I have righteousness through his blood. In Romans 5, it says, We've been justified by his blood, or declared righteous. Where before I was saved, I was guilty, I was condemned. I have peace through his blood, peace with God. Now, before we were saved, the Bible says that we were, we were enemies of God. But now, through his blood, it says, I have peace. And that's just some of the aspects of how we're blessed by Christ's blood. We don't have time to go into all of them. And uh, just a little side note, too. The cup of blessing with which we bless. We're told to bless the cup. We're told to praise the Lord during this time of the breaking of bread. Now, going on to the bread which we break. When I worship the Lord at the breaking of bread and eat the bread. I'm worshiping the Lord and acknowledging that his body was broken for me, but I'm also identifying with the Lord. I acknowledge that I am a part of the body of Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, for we though many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now, even though there are a number of believers in this room, this verse says that we are, all, we are all part of one body. We're all part of the body of Christ. We're all connected to God. You know, in terms of having communion, in terms of having in common with Christ, we can't be any closer. So even though on the surface, um, an outside observer might just see the breaking of bread and see people eating a little piece of bread and drinking a little grape juice from a plastic cup, just this act of eating and partaking of the breaking of bread has a lot more significance. By doing this, I'm acknowledging that I'm a partaker of the blessings that come from the Lord's blood, and I'm deeply connected to the Lord as being part of his body. Next, next, Paul goes on to look at how the Lord was worshipped in the Old Testament. Verse 18 reads, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So, let's take a look at the nation of Israel and how the Israelites worshipped God. Now, the Israelites had a number of different sacrifices they made to God on the altar of the tabernacle and later the temple. 
The book of Leviticus describes the burnt offering, the grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and a trespass offering. And in most of these sacrifices, um, the priest would eat of the sacrifice offered up on the altar. With the peace offering, the person bringing the offering also ate of the sacrifice made on the altar. Now it's different from the breaking of bread, but the Israelites, by eating of the sacrifices on the altar, you could say were in a manner of the Old Testament communing with God. By partaking of the sacrifice on the altar, they were identifying themselves with everything the altar stood for. This was God's altar, so they were identifying themselves with the Lord by eating of the sacrifices on the altar. So just to sum up, if you eat the bread and drink the grape juice of the breaking of bread, you're identifying yourself with the Lord and communing with Him. If you were a Jewish person in the days of the Old Testament and ate of the sacrifices on the altar, you were also identifying yourself with the Lord. So what does it say then if you're a Corinthian and you eat of the food offered on the altar of an idol? Now based on the examples I just covered, if you eat of the food offered in an idol's temple, you're actually identifying yourself with an idol and communing with an idol. Going on to verse 19, Paul says, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Now to answer Paul's questions, what he's saying really is that you know, an idol is really nothing. And there's nothing special that happens to a sacrifice made on an idol's altar. Idols are just pieces of wood or stone or metal or whatever material they're made out of. And there's nothing special that happens to the food once it's offered up on the altar. These are not gods. I'll just read an excerpt from Psalm 115. So, one of the psalmists wrote about idols, they're silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. So, in reference to the Greek and Roman gods, you know, there was, there is no Apollo, there's no Aphrodite, there's no Mars. A Gentile sacrificing food to an idol like Aphrodite is not really sacrificing to an idol named Aphrodite because she does not exist. And there's nothing supernatural that happens to the food that's offered on an idol's altar. It just remains food. Now a Corinthian believer might think, well, if an idol really is nothing and there's nothing mystical that happens to a sacrifice offered on the altar, then um, what could be the harm in a little idol worship? In verse 20, Paul says, 
rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Now, true, by engaging in worship of, of an idol, you aren't actually offering anything to the false god represented by the idol, because that false god doesn't exist. But false worship doesn't just go into thin air, according to this verse uh, from Paul. There's only one true God, and if you're not worshiping Him, you're worshiping demons. By engaging in idol worship, you are actually having fellowship. You're actually identifying yourself with fallen angels. Like I mentioned earlier, the gods represented by idols don't actually exist, but behind idols, there are, there are actual demonic forces. Now you can look throughout the Gospels and see the wickedness and harms that the harm that demons are capable of. You see demons taking possession of people, causing people to harm themselves, causing illnesses. And we know demons are also a source of false doctrine. In the epistle to First uh, Timothy, Paul talks about people who are propagating um, what he calls doctrines of demons. Now, a Corinthian believer who is tempted to partake in a feast to, an, to Aphrodite should really consider, do you really want to get close to one of these beings, to demons, let alone have fellowship with them? Do you really want to participate in worship or idolize something that is an enemy of God? Paul says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Now the Lord Jesus um, says something, a similar verse during his earthly ministry. I'll just read it. It's from Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. The Lord said that you cannot serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And so I cannot really serve God and worship God, and at the same time serve an idol and worship an idol. It just, that can't be. I mean, you know, it's physically possible that a Corinthian believer could... Um, eat an idol's temple and then go partake in the breaking of bread, but it would have been very hypocritical. Now, now what I was saying last week, you know, the Lord desires his church to be a chaste bride to himself, as pure, without fault. Now, if I were a Corinthian believer engaging in idolatry, I couldn't honestly say I was showing God love and loyalty. According to that verse in Matthew, I'd be showing God that I hate him and despise him. Now, perhaps there are still some in the Corinthian church who are still tempted to just want to do their own thing, thinking, well, what's the harm in eating at an idol's altar? But Paul throws the questions. 
in verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now we looked at earlier in chapter 10 what happened to those people in the nation of Israel who had turned away from the Lord and to idolatry. The Lord had many of these people killed for turning to idolatry or turning to activities associated with idolatry, such as sexual immorality. The Lord makes it very clear in his word that he desires to have first place in our hearts. And what the, the Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. So Paul asks, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? It's like asking, do you really want to provoke the Lord? Are we stronger than he? Of course, the question, answers to those questions is no. No, we don't want to provoke the Lord. And of course, we're not stronger than the Lord. He's all-powerful. So how do we apply this message in 2017? You know, Paul gives a very clear command from the start. Flee from idolatry. But um, you might think right now, well, um, I don't engage in idolatry. I, I worship the Lord Jesus and Him alone. So how do I apply this command to flee idolatry? I have nothing to flee from, right? Well, idolatry is not just bowing down to a statue representing a false god. Idolatry is still very alive today. It's taking different forms. And already in, um, in the New Testament times, you know, Paul mentions that there are some people who make their belly their God. That's in Philippians 3. And Paul also says in Ephesians, he says that actually covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is when I fix my desire in something. When I set my sights on something so intensely that I want it more than I want God. And, you know, we let things slip out in everyday language. People engage in idol worship, they just don't know it. You might hear someone saying something like, wow, I idolize that person. I want to be just like them. Well, that person's my idol. Now, it sounds like a, a harmless comment, but there's actually more to it than we think. Really, idolatry, as Noah mentioned last week, is really anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Now, people may not bow down statues today, like I said, but there are still plenty of idols around. Um, Christine, if you could put that slide up, that the first slide. So take a look at that slide. Is there anything there that is a possible idol in your life? Now, a lot of these things in themselves, they, they may not be bad things, but when we put um, our focus on them to the point where they're more important to us than God, well, then they become an idol. You know, there's nothing wrong with having children. But, you know, my mom confessed to me that um, throughout much of um, my time growing up and my, and my sister raising us, that uh, my mom confessed that she put us before God. And she said, you know, 
her children became her idol. Or take ministry. I mean, how could ministry be an idol? I mean, you're serving God. But if ministry takes a place in your life that's so important that you may be doing the ministry more for yourself than for God, then, well, that's become an idol too. Now, like I said, the Corinthians, they were probably surrounded by idols in their city. But the fact is, in 2017, we are also surrounded by idols that we have to run from. And by the way, it, it may not just be one idol in your life. There could be several idols trying to compete for your attention. We see in the, in the Old Testament, King Solomon. King Solomon started off well. He was following the Lord early in his life. But then, toward the end of his life, he turned to idolatry. And there's at least four different gods he's mentioned as worshiping. We might have several idols in our life. Maybe it's not just our job, maybe a combination of job, relationships, and seeking the approval of other people. So here are a couple ways that you might detect an idol in your life. When you look at your life, um, what are you focused on? What are you spending so much of your energy and time and resources on? Is it on the Lord or is it on something else? What am I filling my life up with? Now just to give an example, plenty of people have work as an idol. If I had work as an idol, I might be pouring all my time and energy into my job. I might be working overtime, not because I have to, but because I want to. I want to get ahead in my job. I might be thinking of my job day and night. And if you put the next slide up, Christine. And here's another way of detecting idolatry in your life. Is there anything in your life that you are intensely dissatisfied with? You think, if only I had this in my life, life would be perfect and complete. I would be set for life if I had this. Do I have any symptoms of dissatisfaction in my life? Like, do I have selfish ambitions? Do I have lustful thoughts? Do I have envy towards other people? Do I have resentment? Do I have anger? Okay, put the slide down, Christine. Thanks. Now, the sad thing about idols is they don't truly satisfy a person, even though they might look like they will. I'll just read one verse from Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The prophet Jeremiah, he likened the nation of Israel turning to idolatry as people who had made cisterns or water containers that were broken. So picture me trying to quench my thirst with a water bottle that had a big hole in it. That's basically what you're trying to do if you're trying to be satisfied with an idol in your life. It's not going to work. And just like idols in the Old Testament don't satisfy, idols in the present day won't. 
That's kind of funny. You have different idols at different points of your life. I can tell you when I was a student, I was tempted to think, well, when I'm working and have a great full-time job, I'll be set for life. Well, once the full-time job came, you know, other things became a temptation. And I thought, well, being married, that would, that would make my life just perfect and complete. And after that, you might think, well, having kids would make my life perfect and complete. Then you think, well, maybe having a house would make my life perfect and complete. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things I mentioned, but if we have an unhealthy focus on them, they can easily become an idol. If we're looking for a satisfaction in life from job, from marriage, from all the things that we had on that slide, we're going to be disappointed. Now, this is a little embarrassing illustration, but my wife's urging um, I'm going to uh, show this as a little example of how dissatisfying an idol can be. Hey, Joey, can I have your help for a second? Joey, Shapiro. Yes, thanks. Okay. If you just stand right here for a moment. Okay, so this was, a, I, I would say, a little idol in my life for years. Before I got married even, for years, I would look at this object on Amazon.com every week, maybe just a few minutes, but almost every week, I would look forward to see if the price of it would go down. I really coveted this item. I thought to myself, wow, life would just be so fun with it. Okay, now I resisted buying it for a number of years, but finally I got it this year when I happened to see it was at a very low price. So, okay. Joey, can you pull this thing out of the end of the box here? Yeah, go ahead. Keep pulling. Keep pulling. Now, what is that? A lightsaber. A lightsaber. You could turn it on for a second. Mmm. Yes, it is shiny. It's bright. It makes nice noises, too. It has a nice weight to it, also. Okay, thank you, Joey. Oh, you can sit down. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Now, um, I know it sounds silly, but this is something I had my eye on for a number of years, probably at least 10 years. And now, I, did ha I will confess, I did have a lot of fun with it for the first week, but then something strange happened. I found, you know, it's not quite as enjoyable as I envisioned. And I will have to confess, it spends most of the time in the closet. So this command to flee from idolatry is pretty clear. Avoid it totally. Have nothing to do with something that could take your focus off the Lord. Don't put yourself in unnecessary spiritual danger by exposing yourself to something that could be an idol in your life. And maybe it might mean giving up a hobby, it might mean passing up a job opportunity, it might mean giving up a relationship. But then, you know, what do you do after you have actually run from idolatry? You know, maybe I have left a, left a certain hobby that's become an idol in my life, but then 
another hobby might take its place. It's not just that we need to run from idolatry. We have to run towards a clearer destination. We have to flee from our idols and run to God. And when it comes to our friends and family here on Earth that we enjoy spending time with, we can often come up with some very good reasons on why we love them and why we like to spend time with them. I might say of a good friend, I love spending time with him. He's an extremely caring person. He's a fun person to be around. I remember one of my friends in college, when we talked about a mutual friend of ours, he said, you know, in, in his presence, you just feel loved. Now, with the Lord, there are plenty of reasons why I should want to spend time with him. When I look at who he is, he's my best friend. He's the best friend I'll ever have. He loves me with an eternal love. He's faithful. He's merciful. He's good. He's kind. He's generous. He never changes. If I really believe and take time to acknowledge God for who he is, idols become a lot less tempting in my life. Let's just look at one of God's names. One of God's names is El Shaddai. It's a Hebrew, um, Hebrew words. It really it means the all-sufficient one, the one who meets all needs. Now, I'm not, I, I'm not uh, versed in the Hebrew language. It's something I just pulled off an app called Blue Letter Bible. But it reveals a lot about who the Lord is and how he really is able to satisfy all our needs. Another word for Shaddai that I mentioned, from which many people believe the word's derived, is um, the word Shad, meaning breast in Hebrew. This refers to God being completely nourishing, satisfying, and supplying his people with all their needs as a mother nursing her child. And connecting this with the word for God, El, this notes God who freely gives nourishment and blessing. Really, this name, it speaks of God being as a, the only person who can really satisfy all my needs and the only person who really de deserves all my worship. It says of the Lord elsewhere, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So to effectively flee from idolatry, I need to make sure my focus and attention are on worshiping the Lord and Him alone. No, am I spending good quality time with him on a regular basis? Am I praying with him? Praying to him? Am I really spending time worshiping him? Realizing that communion I have with him as displayed in the breaking of bread? Am I staying busy for him and serving him? Now, if, I, if my life is filled with the Lord and in doing his will, there will be much less time for um, looking towards idols. Am I trusting him alone to satisfy my needs? So, in conclusion, just as the Corinthians did hundreds of years ago, we believers in 2017 need to be careful to flee from idolatry. After all, we're all partakers of Christ as seen in the breaking of bread, and we're blessed abundantly by him. 
if we remember just how blessed we are in the Lord, and we find our satisfaction in Him, we can be successful in fleeing idolatry. I'm just going to do something a little different today. I just uh, would like us all to spend a little quiet time in prayer, just silently praying if there's some unconfessed idol in your life, or if you just want to spend some time quietly worship him, worshiping him. Let's do that before we close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you are the one who loves us and truly desires that we have an abundant life, and you alone, Lord, can satisfy us. And Lord, we um, pray that you would help us keep focused on you, Lord, and help us run towards you and not towards idols. We do pray this in your son's holy name.